are listening to PPEs, Practice, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. My name is Valerie Francisco Menchavez, Associate Professor in Sociology and Sexuality Studies at San Francisco State University. And I'm one of your hosts today, alongside Dr. Joyce Salas, an Assistant Professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State LA. Today's episode features Dr. Lorenzo Perillo, an assistant professor of dance at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. His new book, Choreographing in Color, Filipinos, Hip-Hop, and the Cultural Politics of Euphemism, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, features interviews from over 80 key artists and organizers that utilizes bilingual ethnography, choreographic analysis, and community engagement to examine Black cultural expression in relation to Filipino racialization. Visit his website to buy the book, www.choreographingincolor.com. Let's get our PPE on, y'all. Dr. Lorenzo Perillo is here, third episode of PPE, and we're so excited. Thank you, Lorenzo, for your time and just being here with us today. We're so excited to have you and talk to you about all things you. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Hello, hello, hello. Cool, you know, this podcast, we've been, you know, I've been dreaming it up because you have this new book out. We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna get into your life, like really deep, like deep, like get the tissue box out. You know, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you wanted to if go. If you want, yeah. it's possible. <laughs> exactly. So our first question is, what have you been doing to find and retain your joy during Miss Rona, the Rona pandemic, the Corona pa- pandemic, what is it that's keeping you joyful? Mm, all right. So I, you know, I've been, I guess there's been so many phases of the pandemic. <laughs> it's been changing. Yeah, um, yeah. Now that I'm back uh, in teaching mode, I feel like having a routine of, like, you know, physical activity, mental, med- meditative kind of activity, and also just veg activity has been really kind of keeping me joyful. I try to like be creative, especially like getting kind of more like human contact with my students, because I think that it, like nowadays, you know, we don't have that passing each other in the hallway with our peers or our students. So there's just so much that's lost, um, I think. And so trying to find new ways to learn about them with um, cheesy icebreakers. <laughs> like um, last week, I remember I was so hyped for class and we all kind of shared this excitement because we were talking about, you know, what's your go-to karaoke jam? And then that just got to, you know, everybody to talk about like, oh, like I'm totally an 80s kid or someone was saying, you know, I don't know who NSYNC is. And then everybody was like, oh, wait, you know, like kind of like remember that we're all coming from different backgrounds and different pop cultural references. And, and so I think that was, that's been something I think that's helped me retain joy is to just try to find ways to work at recreating humanity in my daily interactions because most of my daily interactions are screen interactions. But you know, I just had my uh, my dad's 71st birthday, shout out to my dad. And we had a, screen, a Zoom um, thing and it was so funny. My little nephew, Sebastian, shout out to Sebastian and Benji, his big brother. Um, 
he was like kind of dissing his brother he was like too much screen time benji benji has too much screen time and i'm like dude you're four and you're already like knowing how to talk about screen time that's cute but also yeah very kind of telling and telling of our time so (laughs) what just to go back one bit what is your karaoke go-to jam also that's t2 joy Ooh, Bon Jovi Bed of Roses. Although, you know, I, I think I need to practice it. Maybe we could have a uh, a karaoke rehearsal. Um, <laughs> but yes, Bed of Roses. Um, I've been getting back into the um, Eric Benet, um, Tamia duet um, lately, trying to think about how to um, do justice to SWV week, you know, trying to get into some of those R&B um, <laughs> jams. Yeah, and I'll popcorn to Joy. Oh, I think my favorite is I Swear by All for One. <laughs> solid, solid choice, solid choice. That'll get There's the room. There's like a double meaning in that choice. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, actually. And and my, my go-to are like, you know, the you know kind of I don't know what like musical the lower voice like you know R&B vocalist we're talking like Tony Braxton yes Anita Baker Sweet Love you know what I mean um Tony Braxton another sad love song yes it's slow but you know Filipino karaoke ain't fast I mean Bon Jovi that's kind of too fast that's like a <laughs> that's like hype you up but I feel like Filipino karaoke in the Philippines at least is like sing your heart out like melancholy you know what i mean like let's all yeah, try to go <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. that's real you know yeah no it, it depends on what kind of i guess space i'm in if it's like by myself mm. in a room or in my car or with a bunch of you know barcada drinking and that's then true. it's like bon jovi it's my life you know yes i'm down with that i'm 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 there with you i'm in the barcada like let's go yeah or scrubs (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah rolling (laughs) yes absolutely absolutely so joy do you want to go into that second question for lorenzo oh yeah this is the one where you can just like you know talk about your life story and get the tissue box <laughs> so this is basically what's your story you know how's your life your your personal experience informed your work and your research um yeah and you can really go anywhere with this question mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah you know I um when I think about my research and I, I put this in my acknowledgments like I wouldn't really be in dance um, if I weren't, uh, if I weren't the little brother to my big sister, um, it's a very, you know, wind beneath my wings sort of situation, um, because she was the one that, um, joined the flag team in high school, and I was the one that had, you know, followed her and did everything that she did, and, and so that kind of led me to the dance, the dance team or the drill team um, in San Diego. Um, and that was just a whole world of, of meeting other people from other schools and competing against them and dance or drill and flags um, and kind of getting in touch with um, that scene of street dance in Southern California and competitions that then kind of overlapped a lot of the, you know, import shows and competitions and debuts and people choreographing for folks, uh, debuts and um, garage parties. Uh, So I think like, yeah, overcoming shyness, overcoming social anxiety through dance was the initial motivation. And also um, like shout out to my sister, my Ata Sherry. who, um, you know, she actually started the small flags team at, at UCSD. So Benji, is um, it, this is Benji and Sebastian's mama. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I think, you know, when I was doing research in Hawaii, I found that a lot of people got into scenes through their siblings. And so there could be a whole nother project about, about that. Um, but, but then I went to Cal and I got into the Filipino uh, 
community there. Um, and that's when I first started doing Filipino cultural folk dance um, through PCNs and through, they just had a lot of different things. Like for Fair Heritage Month, they always did the subli or for different things, they, they brought in folk dance um, and got you know, introduced to folks that worked with Bindle Stiff. Um, and I uh, was taken by my uh, mentor, my kuya in the mentorship program to Culture Shock. Um, yeah, and so then I got into the, like the broader hip hop community that wasn't rooted in Filipino organizations or Filipino groups. Um, were you in San Diego? Did it look Filipino for you? Yeah, I was gonna ask that yeah. too. Did it what? Did it what? what in San Diego, was it like Filipino? Like I just imagined that drill team in a place like San Diego for your Atisheri or for yourself, would it be yeah. mostly Filipino or not? Yeah, or it was mostly Filipino. So this is the dynamic of those uh, like drill teams is mostly white across like LA. Um, but there are groups that, and they were mostly, uh, you know, there were, they're not there. It was like mostly women and then like our group and then there's a group in Channel Islands and a group and then Morse uh, in National City ended up getting also a co-ed dynamic but this was like the first kind of times that they started being co-ed and then uh and then the co-ed turned into also having uh like an all all male quote-unquote street team um because co-ed was mostly uh like Lindy Hop and swing and and it was kind of interesting doing lifts and all that uh, because in the fall we would do the halftime show for the for football and so it was like a sport you know it's kind of related to sports so the whole band had a culture I don't know if y'all like were like involved with band or music and then the drill flags uh, letters had the parade and and all of that and on the on halftime shows and then in the spring we had competitions where we'd try uh, we, we would travel in the fall and in the spring but it's just one one is on the field and then one is in the basketball court um so it was filipino in my school my school was like 30 percent filipino um at mira mesa and so and so it just happened to be that was like the filipino sport <laughs> was dance. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of like made me think about like how I was uh, racialized or how folks were racialized as, you know, model minorities not being expected to uh, have rhythm. And then on the other hand, Filipinos having this like kind of other stereotype of being talented and singing and dancing. Um, and those kind of stuck with me um, as like, oh, you were, you know, I was like a quote unquote nerd or self self-described nerd, most likely to succeed. And um, <laughs> so, you know, got to own it, own your truth. And, <laughs> and so I kind of like- Own your journey, own your journey, own journey yes. Own my journey. And so I kind of felt like, you know, going through, oh my God. So, so it's so funny. I found this reader at Berkeley um, from one of my classes that I took in American studies about the frontier. And it was a, a professor, uh, Christine Palmer, who I, I couldn't remember the name, but I remember turning in the final and I talked about PCN throughout the class and about like Filipino Americans. Um, and she was like, um, and I must have told the grad student one time that uh, you like, I would have interest in grad school. You know, I was pre-med, but um, I was, you know, maybe thinking about also doing grad school for other stuff. And she must have told the professor and she came up to me or when I turned in my final, she said, you know, we need more people like you. And I remember just getting chills like, you know, I feel seen. Um, and those are the moments that, you know, like you can't, you just, you just don't know how much they affect you as a person um, who is struggling between um, societal expectations and finding your own voice and finding your own place and belonging, um, not in a very abstract way, but very in a very like practical way. Like, do I try it and then see if I like it or do I, go for something that I'm good at. And then maybe that becomes like less interesting to me because I'm doing it every day for money. You know, like there's these like really kind of um, interesting things when it comes to pursuing something like dance, especially uh, for, I think for us in like who have expectations to do something more uh, traditional quote unquote, like um, be a doctor or be a lawyer or be an engineer. 
Um, and so for me, you know, it took a it took kind of time to develop a relationship to dance that I was uh, that sit, sat well and um, and to like hear not just listen to these people that said, oh, you should do that, but like hear what they're saying uh, about like, oh, what do you mean we need more people like you? You know, like it didn't really like register like what that meant. And then maybe it had a lot of different meanings. Um, but I emailed her and I was like telling her about my book and, and all this. And she was, she was super happy. She remembers the class. She remembers, I mean, obviously I don't think she, uh, she, she doesn't remember me, but you know, <laughs> she remembers, she remembers the year and the class and everything. And I thought that was great that I could um, reconnect with her um, in full circle. Yeah. So one of the things that I knew going into hip hop is that like, you can't do this forever. Like your body is just gonna, it's a high impact dance, <laughs> you know? So how can I have a relationship to the community that is beyond my joints and my muscle capabilities? Um, and so I think scholarship and research were my, um, were my solution, you know, my response, because I didn't really want to be a small business owner um, with a studio, or I didn't want to go into the commercial field and dance, um, you know, go touring, or I, I didn't see that as something that's long-term. Um, and that's fine if that's what you want to do. But I think for me, it was understanding it from a more critical lens and thinking about all the things that we do in PCNs or in our community dance spaces um, that are sort of articulated in dance, but maybe not in our discussions in class or our discussions at, in ethnic studies courses. Um, and so I, I felt like, oh, maybe I could do this. Like, I don't see why not. Or I, I mean, I don't see it out there and I don't know anybody who has, has this as their project or, or has written on this, um, but maybe- No, I it's you. It's you. It's really you. Thank you. Thank you for your contributions to our live. I mean, my my tag question on that is how did it bring you out from Cal? How did it bring you to Manoa? You know, did you choose like, okay, we don't see this ethnic studies kind of pocket around Filipino dance, choreography. How come you didn't go back down south, you know, UCSD or UCLA or, you know, something that kind of, I'm, I'm thinking Southern California because, you know, you're in the Bay, there's a rich, like kind of dance, you know, Filipino culture there. Obviously you're from San Diego. There's also something there. Why, why not sort of stay in these areas where, you know, yeah. you can have so much access, you know. It's funny. Uh, so this is another uh, critical Filipino studies shout out to Tracy Buena Vista. Um, I, you know, I, I was like, how do you do grad school? Like, what is grad school? <laughs> She's like, you have to find an advisor that has a research project or something that's related to what you do. It's not about the school's name. I'm like, oh my goodness, I did not know that. You know, these things that nobody tells you how to like fill out paperwork. Or, that's the gem know. right there. That is a gem right there. Thank you. Like, Shout out Dr. Buena Vista, also a cross rope, jump rope champ right here. <laughs> and so, and so... I was in San Diego and imposter syndrome is real. So I felt like before I could even apply, I had to go like take classes at a community college in Asian studies and ethnic studies because I wasn't an ethnic studies major in undergrad. And for me to like, it was, seemed a little bit assumptive to be like, oh, I could just jump into a, an American studies or ethnic studies program and, and um, do well. And so I felt like I needed to go back and do like a, a class or two um, at Miramar College or Mesa College, uh, Miramar and Mesa College. And then so, and there I was like, wow, the curriculum sucks. We really need to do like, we, I remember starting like a petition against the professors really bad. So, so I was like, oh, like we need to like, we need to like change this curriculum. We choose other books. Um, and by the time that I wanted to apply, it was like late admissions. It was too late to apply. And UH had a really late admission thing. And, was, and then also um, Theo Gonzalez was teaching here and he had wrote, was writing on PCNs and the Filipino community was really strong here. And then I came to learn that it's also very different. The formation of Filipino identity here is very different. And so, and so it was great. Like um, I learned about 
the b-boys in Waipahu, b-girls in Waipahu, um, ultimately transferred to UCLA and got to work with um, Dr. Victor Bascara and Dr. Susan Foster and Dr. Lucy Burns. And so I think like my path was not direct in any way, but I think it was fitting for me and it put me in circles that I think helped build, like helped me gain the skills that I felt I was lacking because you know, I felt, oh, I'm the, I was, you know, there's this kind of thing of like, I wasn't an ethnic studies major. So I always felt like there were words, terms, debates that I didn't know um, that were, that could lead to my, like continue being a weakness for myself. And so I, I felt like I kind of always needed to, to, to work on that a little bit more than other folks who came from a, a humanities. Like, I didn't know I was gonna be a writer, like be an author. I didn't know grad school meant being an author. No one tells you that. That's another thing I wish, like, I wish like folks know if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, what is grad school? A grad school is just learning. No, like actually, well, some pathways, grad school is many things, but some pathways it's like publishing means writing and that's already an act of translation for a dancer. And so like, I had to struggle with this idea that writing is already translating the embodied knowledge that I want to, you know, I want this embodied knowledge to already be legitimate. I don't want my career being about legitimizing something. I want it to be about understanding it, you know? And so there's these kind of steps that you have to take and knowing your audience and knowing if your audience is ethnic studies, then it's legitimizing embodied knowledge because there's not many ethnic studies environments that have dance as a core curriculum, let alone an elective, let alone always offered. I don't know, maybe you can tell me some of the places I know in Wisconsin, they have one, but, um, and- but SF, yeah. State, SF State has a few. SF State has a few, but it's really hard to find. And so that's why you find them in these student organizations um, because there's no place for them in the core, uh, or they're not considered core curriculum. And so, but then if you're in the dance department or in a theater department, then it's predominantly white. It's a predominantly white institution. And so that conversation gets to be around how do I, you know, how do I bring in critical race theory that is not multiculturalist? Um, and so, you know, my experience, oh, I think my experiences in those different departments um, has really helped me challenge the disciplinary divides in ethnic studies and in theater and dance studies. Uh, because at the core, I was really kind of questioning, and I, I, I wrote about this before, is like, why is a, like, why does, why is it when we think of a conscious hip hop artist, we only think of an MC? And to me, I'm like, oh, so I'm not conscious? Like, what is that? <laughs> right, right, right. And in all the other elements, right? I think and all about, the other? Yeah, and all the other elements of hip hop, yeah. That's yeah, and I really point. think, you know, the Third World Liberation Front, like legacy was about like recuperating, reclaiming all of our knowledge practices, not just the written word or not just the um, oral. Um, and I think, that is a project that's bigger, way bigger than me, um, but that I can at least have, um, a, you know, I can make an intervention within the community that I am like, close to, um, and that can lead to, to further interventions. Because yeah, obviously this is just a start, um, but hopefully, you know, folks can develop their own languages, their own terms for the things that haven't really been um, examined uh, rigorously enough so that folks can have a better informed conversation when talking about Filipino cultural performances or Filipino cultural productions or Filipinos in hip hop, um, and particularly from an embodied knowledge centered perspective. Joy, you unmuted earlier. Did you have something to say? I don't remember. That's, okay, that's cool. <laughs> My, I, I really, you know, Lorenzo, I, from the moment that I was listening to your work many AAASs ago, 
I've just always been like enamored because I, as a sociologist, as a social scientist, right? I think about embodied knowledge, like in the lives of Filipino migrants, um, but I don't see it in motion kind of, right? So like the ethnographic piece of it or the interviews, that's kind of what I, where I rely. And I've used your work to draw out, draw out some of that um, embodied knowledge piece. And what I've used most successfully is your thriller article, right? And um, for sexuality studies graduate students in my department, who I, we have an MA program in sexuality studies, I use that um, because you know, some of our students are going to write a thesis and other students want to produce art and or a blog or a, you know, they want to paint something or create a film or whatever. And your piece, that piece, the, um, the thriller piece helps me marry some of my social science, like you know, what's the theory, theoretical framework, like technologies and Foucault, you know, but like, here, let me paint this scene for you, right? And, you know, and, and you, you're unabashed in terms of like using like dance terms, like phrasing, I'm like, what's phrasing, you know, in, in terms of bodily movement, right? And um, I've just loved that part about your work because um, easily, and even at SF State where the Third World Liberation Front began, our theater dance department is super white, and, um, you know, in our ethnic studies departments in AFAM or Asian American studies, you're right, it's not necessarily a core requirement or, you know, um, a, a piece of like, you know, a, a requirement to understand sort of the field of Asian American studies. And so you have just published this book um, and it's called, well, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't ever know how to say that word correctly. Can you say the title of your this beautiful book? Oh yeah, um, choreographing in color. Okay, because I always say choreographing. I don't know why I say that. I'm oh. like it's like choreography. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, and this this book, what are, what are the questions that you are? So what are the main questions that you're grappling with? Are you sort of bringing in um, kind of what you are talking about in terms of embodied knowledge, and you're, are you still kind of playing with those same kind of foundational concepts in your book? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm. I you know I I bring in like the book is about people, like first and foremost. Um, um, and how people create ideas through action, um, or people think through their actions and particularly through their dancing. Um, and so for me, you know, like one version of the book, it's the last, like it's a story about Filipino dancers over the last 50 years, you know, as they rose from invisibility to viral phenomenal like status. And then another story is that it tells is that it, is a way of uh, documenting the relationship between Black culture, which is often marginalized in analyses of Filipino culture, um, rooted in the Philippine-American War, with legacies in contemporary Filipino performance, and how those um, change the way that we think about uh, critical race and intersectional feminist dimensions of Filipino performance. Um, and so I think on the one hand, like my initial, I guess my initial responsibility is to tell a story, you know, tell my story, tell a story that I think does the dance justice. Um, but the other kind of like added, I think, uh, element to, to writing or to being a creator or creative is that it can't just be a report. You know, it has to be creative. Um, and the story can't just be like every story. Uh, you know, like I had gone through other iterations of like, oh, how do I, how do I conceptually structure this? And I think that thriller article was one of the ways that I found my groove because each of those sections of the thriller article are informed by the actual dance. And so this is actually a thing within dance studies that builds off of, um, like Susan Foster, Thomas DeFrance, um, Randy Martin, they all sort of allow dance to have an agency in shaping how it is written about. So, you know, Thomas DeFrance uses the break um, in uh, like in 
sectioning chapters uh, and having different types of uh, mini breaks in between substantive chapters of his his book, uh, Dancing Revelations about Avin Ailey. And um, for me, it was allowing, well, the, the broader framework is about how do we talk about Filipinos that aren't performing the stereotypes of Filipinoness, like Maria Clara, or um, how do we talk about the Filipino stereotypes without reaffirming or reconfirming stereotypes, right? And so this idea of the euphemism um, really kind of came, like organically came through in terms of uh, when my cousins were making fun of me because of my English and they were demonstrating that they had like a nosebleed. And I sort of understood that that was not like a compliment <laughs> to me, but it was also not really like a harsh resisting American imperial English kind of statement, you know, performance. Like this is a performance in the social, in the mundane, right? Like, and, um, and so for me, it was this interesting way of showing, like showing me that I have privilege in a way, but not verbally and like in a very embodied way. And so I, I, I kind of use that as an initial way to talk about the euphemism, which also I see in hip hop as well, because it's about substituting something that can't be spoken about or it's illegible or invisible or too, too graphic or violent for a normative space with something else, but also still having an ability to not just be a, a censorship, but create something new. So like bleeping out, like I, I talk about the F-bomb, uh, like bleep, it creates another kind of aesthetic or another type of rhythm. And I see Filipino performers doing that. Like they're not necessarily assimilating to a white, a white ideal. And they're also not necessarily just reclaiming a pre-colonial like trope of femininity or masculinity. But, um, and that's not to say that those, those versions of performance exi don't exist out there. There are people that are doing those things, but I was more interested in the in-between performances or the performances that lack uh, a clear articulation of what exactly they're doing, like that they're, they're resisting the code, but they're still using the code. Um, and the codes being, you know, gender, national, ethnic, um, sexual, racial, um, embodied, like language, right? And so for me, like functioning, I mean, structuring the book around that, like the zombie, like a Filipino performing the zombie is not, you know, it's not easily recognizable as something that you, like, you understand what they're doing, right? And so I was like, okay, this is something that we need to unpack. And so for that dance, you know, each of those sections um, is, has like a vignette, a movement description of the actual dance, because within dance studies, you have to re recreate the dance on the page in order for the audience to understand what's going on, um, otherwise, or show the video. Um, and then that theory that's being made in the dance then gets kind of discussed in the, in the chapter. But, you know, I, I didn't want to do like a formula thing right, where each chapter is like that. So with the B-girl chapter, it's also about migration. Each section is like an element of B-girling. And I thought it would be really interesting to think through what are the components of B-girling, like the freeze or the get down, and how can those be metaphors for um, someone's life? Uh, because a lot of the things that I was hearing is like hip hop prepares you for life's challenges. Like, and so why not do justice to the dance and not just objectify it and say these are the steps of the dance but actually show that this is what's going on in the life cycle of filipino dancers that are forced to emigrate or choose between reuniting with their family and staying in the philippines choose between being demoted into like in a global north like entertainment system that devalues the Filipino body or treats it as disposable or staying in the Philippines that underpays you but you're a hero you know and then that other element of dance migrants um, overseas Filipino workers dealing with the 
um, you know, racial exclusivity of, of performing in Japan or in Hong Kong or in Singapore um, as <clears throat> in terms of, you know, choreography that's not so complex or choreography that's just like um, for uh, entertain, entertaining uh, crazy rich Asian audiences um, versus being in, and, but getting paid triple wages and getting housing. And so those kinds of things, like those stories, I think are, are often left out of uh, when people think about, you know, Filipinos and hip hop dance, they might think about the commercial and glossy TV reality shows, like So You Think You Can Dance or World of Dance. But, you know, there are visas, there are exclusionary policies, like there's uh, state brokered labor migration, those things that create the conditions in which we see the international hip hop or the global hip hop phenomena. I think those things deserve much more discussion and interrogation and hopefully um, like, you know, not just assuming that, uh, hopefully that conversation can be beyond representation, but actually to the systemic inequity that affects Filipino bodies so that we can question why is it Filipinos are everywhere? Or why do Filipinos, why do we think Filipinos are naturalized, natural dancers? Or why do we think Filipinos, or why do, not we, I wanna say, why do some people think Filipinos are subservient wives? You know, like, and so I think it's really important and not to just take it at like a theoretical level, but really talk to people at like, like, like on like on the ground in the community about how does the stigma of the Japayuki affect your uh, your like choice to work in Japan and to to teach hip hop dance in Japan or to or to stay in the Philippines and not go to the U.S. or to Australia um, and the testing that they did that was like an eye opening thing that the um, teaching ballet and jazz to folks that are going to do like new jack style dances in, in Japan. Um, so yeah, so there are a lot of parts to this story that I really wanted to get on the page. And in some ways, I think maybe um, each chapter could start its own thing. Um, and folks could kind of focus, or they can just focus on one chapter at a time. And it doesn't have to be like a start to finish like front to back kind of narrative but i think that i mean that was one of the challenges really is like what story to tell what story gets left out <laughs> um and making peace with my responsibility to the community that it's not just going to be an object for intellectual consumption but something that can help the community think through uh think through its its development in ways that are more empowering or more uh, to help it grow. Yeah, I love the um, structure, like how you describe not just the content of the book, but how you've chosen to structure it. I think that um, it's also a model for, you know, Filipino, Filipino, Filipinex, um, American, and, and in the Philippines um, to really think about their academic work as uh, a place where you can also kind of remix, you know, the, the page, you remix the format of it. And I think um, about the multiple translations as you have just taught me, didn't know I was coming to class today, thank you. <laughs> Learning so much right now. Um, but, you know, I, I, th I think about the multiple translations, like you were saying, your, your translation of the dance, a description of the, the movement in, on the page and then your discussion of it theoretically. And I think about that as an ethnographer in my book, I've kept in all the Tagalog, right? Um, because there was a, a part of me that was like, well, I don't wanna speak for them, right? Like um, I wanna have the words. And then, you know, this senior scholar told me one time, I was like, well, what if you can't read Tagalog? What, what's, what is the purpose of the Filipino words on the page? And I was like, it's so that they, they can tell their own story, you know, for the people who can read Filipino, then they, they can see how I've, you know, sort of translated it. And so I think about, I was thinking a lot about that when you were talking about sort of the descriptions of the dance and how, you know, these different elements. Um, yeah, thank you for describing this beautiful book. 
Yeah, and I actually want to add too, like, I think a lot of things in academia are like, you have to do this in order to get to the next stage and you do that, like, you have to write your argument this way or you have to structure your introduction this way, which is true. <laughs> like, especially in many ways when you want to like reach certain milestones, you do have to, I guess, follow the rules. But I think that, you know, the form, the way that academia and like getting to particular milestones is like following a particular formula. I mean, that's a form of disciplining us. Um, and so I think, yeah, this is the importance of being able to write the book on your terms. Cause it is like, I mean, it is uh, like the book is, you know, is collective knowledge and you putting it on the page. Um, yeah. And so, and, you know, like to add on to that, like the formula is the thing that I think the book is really trying to expose as implicated within the, like within American empire, within neoliberal capital, like the formula that these dances will get more points at an international hip hop competition. And that this, you know, that they are promoting certain types of dance and discouraging cheer and um, gymnastics. Like there are racial like di dimensions to, to this. And at the, in the international stage, like to really think through how like, I don't know how, I guess blackness, anti-blackness, white femininity get, get kind of inscribed in the actual formulas, um, but not talked about, but sort of like, oh, we know that we don't want it to look like cheer. You know, that's already saying something that like you don't want it to look like cheer. There's like, if we understand cheer as a certain like type of, of uh, cultural, culturally specific practice, then you're you're already saying something right or that that they're promoting traditional dance uh, for each nation kind of raises the question like who gets to decide what a good traditional dance is or what a good capoeira is or what a good salsa or tinikling is in an international panel of judges and i generally i'm interested in that question like it's not that i don't want traditional dance or fusion to be on the stage or anything it's just it's just a generally interesting dilemma about how to strive towards unity when there are so many um, misrecog potential misrecognitions or misunderstandings, as we saw with the Thriller video um, and how successful that, that was, despite how problematic it is. And so, and so, yeah, and then there's the PCN formula, right? And how that can be its own type of, uh, you know, box, uh, plan box for Filipino American diasporic um, performers to exercise a type of privilege in front of their family members and audiences. Uh, and so, yeah, so we're talking about uh, the Unipro. And I think that's one of the really exciting things is that each community like Unipro, Texas, Unipro, Chicago, they all have a different local history of Filipino performance, access to ethnic studies, um, political dynamics of the Filipino demographic that I think- Re Relationships to those cultural performances, right? I mean, I, I feel like um, when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, uh, a Filipino cultural night was so like, it was one of the things that folks are hanging on to where in the Bay Area, lots of Filipinos are like, no thanks, I'm not gonna do that. I'm, I'm gonna do the open mic here or you know do something other other kind of cultural performance because their relationship to yeah. filipino performance is different from for their like location you know in their context yeah yeah and like i think and that was what's so interesting is to think about okay so if you wanted to do like a top like do a play about the issues in that location like how could it be a standardized play you know how could it be a play that works in every single location, you know, like that's, that's, that was one of the things that was really interesting. It's like, okay, I can't assume that what I have learned from my experience is gonna necessarily crack open some new way of performing for your community, but I can share what I've experienced and your community can sit with that and think about its own history, its own genealogy and do some self-inquiry about that and see what happens um 
yeah because there's so many different types uh i mean obviously it kind of exposes the the heterogeneity of 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 achieving of achieving justice like you kind of have to accept the fact that there's going to be many paths for communities um yeah <laughs> actually on that note on you know justice and you know filipino american communities so i mean this next question is about filipino filipino studies and what it means to be critical um and um what does it mean to you as a scholar as a researcher as someone who is part of um, who sees himself as part of the dance community um, and who has done research in the Philippines and in the United States as well. Um, so, yeah, what does yeah, critical mean to you in this field? Yeah, I think critical to me means like, it's sort of like a plus one. It's like, what, the, what, what, what does it mean to be basic? <laughs> And then, like, what does it mean to be on top of that? My internet connection is unstable. It says, "Whoops." Okay. Hello. Okay, is this working? Okay, maybe it didn't want me to say that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, critical to me means like setting yourself up apart from the mode of scholarship that just reproduces a status quo. Um, and so that might be being uncritical about area studies and reproducing some kind of uh, asymmetrical relationship between you and the subject because you're just standing back and recording and think that's good enough. Or it might be in ethnic studies. Like I think for ethnic studies, it might be, you know, objectifying cultural performances um, and just like thinking that you can understand it just by interviewing the performers rather than actually engaging in the performance or taking on like taking classes and training in the embodied practices of whether it be fma or singing or dancing you know like for a long time folks thought like oh i can understand this performance just by interviewing folks but like you know like within dance studies there's like a big push against that as not enough like like that dance is a form of knowledge that can only be understood by dance. And so to interview someone is one piece of information that can help shape your understanding of it, but that isn't necessarily what the dance means. That's what someone that did the dance verbalized about, like, about it. So I think, yeah, I think I, I kind of understand critical to mean many things, depending on your situated in a particular field. I think for Filipino studies, for me, because I'm coming from that uh, dance scholarship background, a lot of Filipino studies, Philippine dance studies, doesn't interrogate systemic inequity and sort of just focuses on the dance or focuses on um, recuperating history, uh, recuperating dances that were endangered, or that are uh, being tourist uh, attractions. And to some extent that is good, but I think that um, like these broader questions about American empire um, and Philippine neoliberal policies like have to be at the core and have to be at the end of your analysis in order for you to get my stamp of critical <laughs> Maybe I'm going to be giving stamps out. I don't know. But I do feel like there is an old school way of like just recuperating dances and thinking that that's like that's good. Um, I think that's a particular way of doing Filipino dance studies. It's a very modernist way, but in some ways it's not enough and it, it replicates some of the things that uh, some of the problems with the field or with access to the field um, that that we all should be striving for. Um, yeah, I hate to say, like, I think critical is also maybe a very limited term for us because when we think about like creating, like when we think about criticism, we think about someone that is like in a chair, watching a movie, taking notes, right? But when we think about creating, 
we don't necessarily have to tack on critical like to it. So I want us to like maybe create space for, I mean, create, I want us to like hold space for folks that wanna be creators or creatives um, in their scholarly production. Like, like you said, Val, like some folks produce writing um, but when we think of criticism, that's usually what we think of as like writing. But I think, you know, obviously there can be criticism in someone's concert show or someone's meme or someone's um, singing. Uh, and, and I think that, I guess I, I hope that folks that are creatives, I think folks that are creatives know that. I think folks that are maybe publishing things need to uh be more inclusive to those types of production um because because they're out there and they you know i think folk, folks are doing doing that type of work but maybe it doesn't get couched as critical it just gets couched as it might get couched as just couched as or categorized as entertainment yeah mm, i don't know what other ways to it might get categorized as like theatrical right 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 commercial but i think but some yeah i do want to hold that space i think um like i haven't thought of critical in in terms of you know the the cfsc in our collective like thinking of sort of a more future-oriented philippinex american studies right that is critical yes um but also holds space for like generative new visions right and and you know um african-american studies scholars have taught me taught us this that you know those future you know, those futurities those queer imaginings are um maybe something that we have to really um put into our view in our radar you know um and so it, it, this leads into our last question um is what right now or always are some sites of hope for you, Lorenzo, in terms of both you as in your multiple identities, um, where where do you find hope? Yeah, I hmm, I think that, uh, you know, obviously, like I uh, we talked about this, I was I did some um, engagements with Unipro Texas and, and Chicago and here in Hawaii, um, you know, there's like a 23% population uh, of Filipinos in the state, and the the campus has like uh, nine around nine percent um, Filipinos, and and so, I mean, I think there's hope in numbers. <laughs> like, like I feel like there's just uh, like that's like one one area. I'm like, oh, like there's just hope that the folks that have like no if you know of someone that's filipino then you uh-oh she's frozen uh-oh are you frozen or is it me we can hear you still oh okay um and so yeah so i think like some of the conversations that i've had in like predominantly white institutions or in the midwest it's about just being legible and being visible because they are the one filipino you're laughing because it's true like because they identify as the one Filipino in a classroom in a suburb that's predominantly white or, you know, and I think like, um, that's fine. I think that's We great. covered that in Joy's that's episode. That's my whole, like, growing up. <laughs> that was in Joy's episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I think uh, what I'm saying is uh, in it, at UH, it's a very unusual circumstance because they have, like, a BA. They have, like, two student organizations like one for Ilocano one for Filipino they have uh, several faculty and so I'm I'm creating or proposing a class working with Dr. Pia Arboleda who's the director of the Center for Philippine Studies on a critical Filipino dance class um, that's going to be cross-listed with the Center for Philippines or Indo-Pacific Languages Department um, I think that so exciting it, sign me up and enroll me in that class yeah, you know, it's not, I mean, I'm hoping to like draw on some of the collaborators that I've met, like the folks, like there's some folks that are in the ballrooms, like Filipinos that are in the ballroom scene in London or Filipinos that are, you know, uh, Melbourne or New Zealand. 
And so I think that like really expanding the ideas of where you know, culture exists um, and still speaking to those, those really important like, uh, like dynamics of uh, decolonizing and, um, and intersectionality and imagining new worlds and new futures. I think those are, those are things that are really hopeful. Um, I was inspired this summer by this, you know, document. I don't know if you know about it, like the We See You What, We See You White American Theater, where um, there are several performers, by Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color that are calling out these uh, theater departments and companies and um, spaces. Um, and they just have this list of demands of all these ways that you can, that we can um, be more uh, equitable. And I think within our departments and you know when I think about critical Filipino studies I think about education um, because it has like you know it's obviously uh, a space in which we all have or in which a lot of us have direct impact on uh, changing um, and so thinking about programming thinking about how we compensate uh, lecturers or how we include lecturers in decision making or how we include students from different backgrounds um, classes and how we count classes. Like, I really hope that we can make a sh structural shift within ethnic studies to count to count classes of different like interdisciplinary uh, modes uh, and not just like not just teaching dance as a as you watch it in the black box theater, but you know competing in dance or creating dance film or um, you know like just other modes of of being uh and imagining i mean thinking about candace Chu, imagining otherwise that that i think ethnic studies has done so much in already and i think can still push um to push to be to have a greater strength and it would strengthen i think um what else yeah so i think like right now like i've been really kind of trying to like I like puzzles, so I'm like trying to think. Okay, how can we talk about every dimension of systemic inequity in dance, <laughs> like through dance? You know, like how can because it's often like when we think of art or criticism, it's often just at the level of representation, and so we like I I get a little bit envious of sociologists or historians or um, political scientists that can just jump to like let's just talk about the wage gap or the gender, you know, like, let's just talk about, you know, this. And like, for, if you're in theater and dance and you have, it has to be connected to dance. And so I'm sort of like in this mode of building resources. So if you all have any suggestions, like what are performances that help create a com or help start or spark or have a conversation about, you know, policing, um, like land, food, climate change, you know, like the, like kind of like a lot of the inspirations that um, Sarita C has sort of like put out into the world of how culture and performance can, can speak to some of the most pressing issues that Filipinos um, are, are experiencing. I think, I think that that is uh, a question that I'm working on right now, because there are so many different dimensions of systemic inequity. And I think I think that there's, uh, yeah, so I think that it's, it's a question that's going to take some time. Thank you so much, Lorenzo, for yes, your time. Thank you. Oh my oh, gosh, I learned so much. I know, me too. My brain has so many wrinkles. Thank you. And I, I'm going to continue to be like, you know, um, thinking about all of this. My daughter is in dance, and, you know, we're talking a lot about her body and you know um the things that she's learning and uh, about her own gender and her I mean her sexuality with it you know um and also she has so much swag she get it from her mama hello you know what I mean <laughs> okay anyway thank you so much Lorenzo I'm so grateful for you and just your work your brilliance and what you bring to us um, in the collective. So we just want to thank you and congratulate you for having, uh, for publishing this book in the middle of a pandemic, which is yes, more than what I'm doing. <laughs> it, yeah, it was, uh, it was a challenge, but if, 
if y'all want to, I don't know if any of your listeners want to check out more of my research or publications, um, you can visit my website at choreographingandcolor.com. Just thought I'd give a, a plug right there, a shameless plug, a walang hiat plug. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we love walang hiat in here. Um, and it'll also be in the liner notes um, of the podcast episode. Oh, okay. I didn't have to do it. Yeah, that too. It's okay. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to hit the stop recording now.